days. We've spent time doing biblical sketches as we've looked at the lives of the 12 apostles in Mark chapter 3. An overview of the men that Christ personally called and discipled so that he could commission and identify for future ministry. As we have noted, he didn't choose them because they were extraordinary. In fact, I was talking to Victoria about this word last night, extraordinary, and I said, when you separate it, it's extraordinary. But then when you put it together, it's something special, extraordinary. Uh, On the flip side, they were, I think, in every way, extraordinary. They weren't scholarly, they weren't academics, nor were they holy men known of great piety. In fact, it could be argued that Jesus picked them purposefully because they were average, because they were obscure, and they had lots of disadvantages. Men who struggled with doubts, with fears, with pride, with matters of lust and sin, like we all do. They were men who needed to grow spiritually and needed Christ to help them overcome many of their prideful tendencies and their prejudices. When Paul encourages us in 1 Corinthians 1.26, he says this, that there are not many wise, not many mighty or noble in the church. And the apostles, they fit this description beautifully. And I think if we're honest, most of the people in the church fit this description. And have you ever wondered why? There's a fairly simple reason God receives more glory for himself when he does great things through unlikely people, through people who are not very wise, who don't have a lot of might, who aren't very noble. And it allows him to manifest his power working through them. And so most of the people God chooses are just average, non-famous, not very powerful, not very wise people. In the world. And this should be encouraging to all of us as we see how God worked in and through the lives of these 12 men. And it translates over into our lives as we see how He uses us accordingly. These men would go on to serve as the basis of our faith through their eyewitness testimony, according to 2 Peter 1 16 through 18. They would provide a basis for our doctrine and fellowship through their teaching, according to Acts 2.42. They would provide a basis of our hope as Gentiles through their message, according to Ephesians 3, 5, and 6. Is there hope for them? Yes, there was. And that means that there's hope for you and me as well as we look to Christ and as we build the foundation of our lives upon him as well. What lessons will you be able to take with you today after we put four of these men under the microscope to take a closer look at their lives? How might God use the testimony of their lives to inform you, to impact you to serve him in greater measure with the numbered days that you have in your life? Maybe you come today with a heart of indifference. You wonder why you should even care. Maybe you don't see the real significance. Many of you know this book has been written in blood. As we look back at the Old Testament and the Old Testament saints who gave their lives for the service of God, who followed the system that God had in place, the sacrificial system for sin, Tens upon potentially millions 
of animals, slaughtered, the Old Testament, written in blood. And then we come to the new covenant, written in the most precious blood that could ever be spilled. The blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then also the foundation provided through the very men that we're going to conclude studying today. Men who also spilt their blood to write the New Testament scriptures. And so I just want to bring that to bear. That let us not come today with a spirit of indifference. Let us not have our heart, not care. But let's see what God has for us. Let's tackle the text one last time. Mark chapter 3, verses 13 through 19. This is what it says written in the NAS. And he, Jesus, went up on the mountain and summoned those whom he himself wanted. And they came to him. And he appointed twelve so that they would be with him. And that he could send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out the demons. And he appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, and James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James. To them he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder, and Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. If you are joining us for the first time today, I would liken your experience to walking into a movie theater to catch the last 20 minutes of a two-hour film. Or maybe picking up the book in a bookstore to read the final chapter. It's going to benefit you, but I believe that it will benefit you in a greater capacity if you have the time to go back and to listen to the previous messages that have been recorded as we've gone through this series. You can go to our church website, cornerstoneoc.com, and listen to them. We have progressively worked our way through this passage, being very sensitive to its context. We've considered the practical purpose of its inclusion in Mark's gospel. And we've also featured some of the future implications as it relates to the lives and ministries of these 12 men who were called, discipled, commissioned and identified by the Lord Jesus Christ. We have been progressively answering a question. What principles can you and I learn from Jesus's uh, four-part approach to handpicking the 12 disciples? And we're under our last point where Jesus personally identified each by name. And as your notes indicate, we have looked at eight out of the 12. And so you'll notice that the first eight have a line through them and we're going to look at the final four today. Time is against us, so let's start away right away. And, and um, we're going to go to the ninth name on our list that is found in verse 18. You may recall, we've already studied a man by the name of James. And we're going to study a second James in this passage. And I shared that there are a number of New Testament uses of the name James, and we need to make sure that we're talking about the right one. First, there is James, the son of Zebedee, that came in verse 14, uh, excuse me, not 14, verse 17, whom we've already talked about. Then there's James, the father of the apostle Judas, not Iscariot. Then there's James, the half-brother of Jesus, 
who became a leader of the church in Jerusalem, who's also known for penning the New Testament epistle, James. And here in verse 18, we have another James, the son of Alphaeus, another one of the New Testament apostles that we're going to focus on now. The name James finds its origin in the Hebrew name Jacob, which means supplanter. In the original language in our verse, the name James is actually accompanied by a small Greek word called, it's micros, which like the English word, micro, means small or little. And this explains why this James is called James the Less or James the Lesser. It could be, and it's been suggested that because of his age, that he was a little bit younger than the other James, that that's why he was called James the Less. It's also been suggested that because of his stature, maybe he was a little bit smaller physically, his physical stature, that he was called James the Less. It could have been because of his maturity and his growth. We don't know exactly what played the role in earning him this nickname. I wish we were able to look at some of his weaknesses that we might be able to learn from them and identify with them. But the only thing that the scripture tells us about him is his name. He didn't record any New Testament epistles, nor are there any recorded interactions with him going up to the Lord, asking questions, putting his um, knowledge of the Lord or any, anything on display. He didn't say a word. And there's a floating rumor that maybe he did try to speak, but Peter was always too busy talking, so he didn't have a chance. John MacArthur had this to say about James. We might say his distinguishing mark was his obscurity. That in itself is a significant fact. Apparently, he sought no recognition. He displayed no great leadership. He asked no critical questions. He demonstrated no unusual insight. Only his name remains while his life and his labors are immersed in obscurity. But he was one of the twelve. The Lord selected him, excuse me, for a reason, trained and empowered him like the others, and sent him out as a witness. End quote. Though the Bible is silent about the details of his life, thankfully, church histori historians such as Thielman von Braut found writings about James from the early church fathers like Josephus and Eusebius that provide some details about the end of his life and his death. Tradition says that a Jewish high priest, Ananias, summoned James to be questioned before the judges that they should compel him to deny Christ and force him to renounce the Son of God and the power of the resurrection. When he refused, an angry crowd ends up attacking him and he wasn't going to recant on Christ. And so they took him to the temple portico and they threw him down. He ended up suffering broken legs and he did not die. And it's been recorded that James the Less began praying to God saying, Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? On account of this, one of the priests begged for his life, saying, What do ye? Or, What are you doing? He is praying for us. Stop stoning him. But another of those who were present had a club in hand and struck a final death blow to his head. 
One other historian shared this final comment about James the Less. Quote, he was on his bare knees so often and for such long periods, praying to the Lord God for the remission of the sins of people, that his knees were so hard and callous that there was no sensation in them at all. O great and constant piety of this holy martyr. End quote. What principles can we apply from James the Less, who was identified by the Lord as being one of the twelve? Well, initially it appeared that we weren't going to have much to go on. And perhaps less is more in this instance. His heart to forgive is a powerful testimony of God's grace and work in his life. And let us take a moment to consider his willingness to forgive those that threw him down and that both of his legs were fractured. And then they were doing what? They proceeded to pick up large stones to throw at him. And he said, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. It clearly provides a picture of Christ and it puts the offenses of those who may have sinned against us into proper perspective, doesn't it? It really does. Are you withholding a willingness to forgive someone in your life? If so... How long are you willing to walk with that pebble of offense in your shoe? You have used this in counseling. That are, it's, raise your hand if you've ever got a pebble in your shoe when you've been out walking. What do you do? You immediately stop. And you take that, you take that pebble out. Why? Because if you don't, as you continue to walk, it will progressively get more and more aggravating. And worse, it can actually cause you to blister or eventually cut into the skin. And if not dealt with properly, then it can infect your foot. Could be some serious issues. So we want to look at that example. Don't harbor unforgiveness. Don't remain in your walk with a, a, a pebble. In your shoe. Remove it. Deal with it. Take it out. If you've offended somebody, go to them and ask for their forgiveness. If somebody's forgiven you and it's caused a breakdown in your relationship, you have a biblical responsibility to go to them in private and to share that offense that you might win your brother or sister let us also take a moment to consider his prayerfulness. It's not very common in our day for people to get down on their knees to pray. It's not very comfortable, nor is it very convenient. And James the Less had callous knees which prevented him from having a callous heart. He looked to the Lord in dependence. And prayer has often been defined as our dependence upon God, and it keeps us from being self-sufficient. Listen to these words written by William Grinnell. The person who does not go to his business every morning by way of a prayer closet rarely returns home in the evening to give thanks to God. He begins the day without God, and it would be unusual for him to end it with him. 
The spider that spins her web out of her own body dwells in it when she is through. And the person who operates his enterprises by his own ingenuity entitles himself to a recognition as a self-made man. Thus it is easier for such a person to worship his own wisdom than to worship God. James the last had knees that provided evidence that he understood what it meant to be utterly dependent upon the Lord. And if you find that your heart is callous at times, maybe it might be related to the fact that your knees are too soft. More time is needed. In order for a prayer to be a ministry pillar of our church, it must be a ministry pillar of our individual lives. And I'm thankful. I'm so thankful that we, that, that our elders have um, chosen to have a top Sunday at least once a month where we're going to take a whole hour corporately as, uh, as a church to pray together. It's so good. It's so healthy. And the world sees prayer as a sign of desperation, don't they? It's a last resort. But the Christian, it's our first resort. And it's our mark of our true dependency. May this be true of our lives as it was for James the less. The tenth name on our list comes in verse 18, and it's Thaddeus. Luke tells us in Luke 6.16 that one of the twelve apostles was Judas, son of James. He adds son of James to distinguish him from Judas Iscariot. Matthew doesn't even use the name Judas or its shortened version Jude to describe the, the apostle. He uses the name Thaddeus. Mark does the same here in Mark 3.18. John in his gospel mentions Judas but adds not Iscariot in order to distinguish him from Judas Iscariot. And the name Judas means Jehovah leads. And it's an absolutely beautiful name. Jehovah leads. But yet that name is forever associated with the betrayal of Jehovah. The betrayal of God. For the sake of consistency, I will call him Thaddeus. The name Thaddeus means brush child and connects with the idea of a nursing child. The name suggests a tender, childlike heart. No account is given in Scripture of how Thaddeus was called to follow the Lord. And much like James the Less, his name is also shrouded in mystery. All we have is his name in the lists of the apostles, with one exception that we find in the Gospel of John. In John 14, 21, and if you want to, you can go ahead and turn there with me. Jesus in this context, is in the upper room with the apostles, and he's continuing to disciple them. And starting in verse 21, Jesus says, He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Then in verse 22, Judas, not Iscariot, Iscariot but Thaddeus, said to him, Lord, what then has happened to you that you are going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? This single comment in John 14 is all we have about the personal life of Thaddeus because he was confused about Jesus' statement. He does what? 
He does what we would all do. We'd ask a question for clarification. The common Jewish belief at the time was that the Messiah would come, that he would overthrow Rome and set up his kingdom. Jesus, however, is telling them that he's going to disclose himself to the apostles, but not to the rest of the world yet. This didn't fit in with Judas's preconceived notions of who the Messiah would be. He was thinking to himself, how can Jesus overthrow Rome, establish his kingdom without manifesting himself to the world? It just didn't make sense from his perspective. And that is all we know about Judas, the son of James. He asked a question to get clarification. There are no blatant weaknesses in his life. There are no opportunities to, for us to see um, really how the Lord spiritually grew him. Yet we do know that he was a sinner just like all of us. Thaddeus had his own share of problems to contend with, we can be sure. One spiritual takeaway is that if you're bringing your questions to the Lord, that is the bless, that's the best spiritual starting place. Amen. That's where we want to start. He is our wonderful counselor. He is our almighty God, Isaiah 9, 6. History shares that Thaddeus' life involved gospel ministry in Mesopotamia, Syria, Arabia, and as far as Edessa. His life ended in Persia, where he there reproved and opposed the pagan idolatry. As a result, he was beaten to death by the idolatrous priests who were losing their sphere of influence as a result of his faithful ministry to exalt Christ and the gospel. And this is how the 10th apostle on our list was laid to rest. The 11th name on our list is Simon the Zealot. And we see his name come at the end of verse 18. The name Simon is the New Testament Greek form of a Hebrew name, Shaman, which means he has shared of course, there are other men who bear this name in Scripture. Simon and Simon Peter was actually first on our list uh, of the apostles. And here we have another Simon. And his name is accompanied by another Greek word that means zealot. And this word shows up in Luke 6.15 and in Mark 10.4. Here in verse 18, his name is coupled with the word Canaanite, which has nothing to do with Cana or the land of Canaan but rather comes from a Hebrew root word that means to be zealous. Obviously, at some point in his life, Simon was a zealot, a name given to extra-zealous Jews who actually opposed Roman rule and oppression. And they were people who didn't hesitate to voice their, their strong opinions and to, to protest regularly. Simon the zealot is also only mentioned in the list of the apostles, but like James the Less and Thaddeus, Scripture is silent about the account of his call to follow Christ, nor are we given any of his weaknesses. Historians tell us that he traveled to Egypt, Cyrene, Africa, Mauritania, and throughout Libya, as well as the islands of Great Britain to preach the gospel and to make disciples. And I don't know about you, but I, every time I read these instances of how much they traveled, especially during a time and how far they went when travel was not easy. It just, it just blows me away. So thankful for you, Julia. So thankful for your willingness. I know the, the, the Denny's are so blessed by your willingness to travel and to help bear the ministry burden there. I rejoice in you. Well, 
here we have another Simon, and of course he's a zealot. We know what this means, and he would have um, been used just like the other men, his apostolic counterparts. He ended his life basically sealing divine truth with his, his very own blood. And so this is interesting from that when we consider the 11 faithful men that we have in our list, it starts with a Simon, Simon Peter, who was crucified, and it ends with Simon the Zealot, who also ended up giving his life. How, you ask? He encountered a governor from Syria who had him crucified. So very interesting that the, the first faithful apostle and then the 11th faithful apostle, they both ended up being crucified. Well, personally, I wish the list ended here, but it doesn't. There's still one more name on the list, and it comes isolated in verse 19. It is Judas Iscariot who betrayed the Lord. Judas, we've already learned what that name means, right? Jehovah leads, which some claim may have indicated that his parents had a genuine desire that Judas would be a man who would follow the Lord, who would be led by the Lord over the course of his life. Yet in a strange twist of irony, his name would forever be linked to betraying God. In all the lists of the apostles, Judas's name always comes last. And whenever Judas is mentioned, there's always a condemning title attached to his name, such as the one who betrayed Christ or the one who became a traitor. Every one of the gospel writers makes a concerted effort, and they want us to know that even the mention of Judas Iscariot is a stench to the nostrils of God because of his betrayal. Judas is the ultimate example of a pretender, a religious chameleon, a spiritual Trojan horse. Jesus in John 17, 12 described Judas as the son of perdition, a word that describes waste, ruin, destruction, something that's actually worthy to be damned. And you might be wondering at this point, why should we even take time to put the life of Judas under the microscope? I mean, what could we possibly learn from the example of Judas Iscariot? You're going to find this ironic, but Judas's life may have more lessons and more principles of application for us than any of the other apostles. His life serves as a warning to us all. Just listen to these seven principles that Pastor Jack Hughes shares that flow out of the example of Judas Iscariot. Judas Iscariot's life helps us to see that you can be called to follow Christ but not be saved. You can be trained to do ministry but not be saved. You can be involved in ministry, but not be saved. You can profess to be a follower of Christ, but not be saved. You can associate with believers and not be saved. You may be called, trained, and devoted to ministry, profess to be a follower, associate with believers, and then go apostate. You may show signs of repentance and feel sorry for your sin, but not be saved. 
And I thought it would serve us well to briefly consider each of these seven principles. So let's get started with the very first one. You can be called to follow Christ and not be saved. Judas, just like all the other apostles, was called to follow Christ and then asked to be an apostle. And he followed Jesus Christ for three years, but he wasn't saved. The apostles were sent out to proclaim repentance and faith in Jesus. And Paul, when speaking to the Greeks in Athens, told them in Acts 17.30, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. The call to salvation is universal. And what this means is that God calls everyone to repent, to believe in the gospel, and follow Christ. But hearing the call understanding the call or even having an outward and verbal response to the call is no absolute assurance that you're saved. Jesus, in the conclusion of his parable uh, at the wedding feast in Matthew twenty-two fourteen, ended the parable with these well-known words. You guys know what they are. Many are called, but few are chosen. You know the text. In this parable, everyone is called. First, those who um, are, are called our, our friends and associates to the bride and the bridegroom, but they refuse to attend. So everyone else is called from the highways and the byways to come in to, to the celebration. Come on in. Celebrate the wedding feast. But there was one man who did come, who responded to the call, yet was not dressed appropriately. Do you remember what was commanded of him? He was bound hand and foot and cast into outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. He heard the call. He responded to the call. He showed up to the wedding feast, but he wasn't saved. Some of you may be trusting that you are saved because you heard the gospel. And maybe you decided to show up at church. You liked some of the people that you met. You connected. You call yourself a Christian. You, you got baptized. You're pursuing a religious life. It's good to hear the gospel. And I don't want you to get me wrong. It's good to come to church. That is great. But it is no guarantee of your salvation. Judas, Judas did that. And yet he resides in hell. Principle number two. You can be trained to do ministry, but not be saved. Judas was, was trained by the Lord Jesus Christ. The greatest teacher who ever walked on this planet was his instructor. He spent time with the Lord Jesus Christ. He heard him teach for three years. He lived with him for three years. He heard his casual conversations, how he ministered to people. He got to hear some of the best sermons that have ever been preached on planet Earth. Judas had training, but he wasn't saved. Jesus sent Judas out to preach, gave him miraculous powers to heal the sick, cast out demons, and preach the gospel. And he did. But he wasn't saved. Listen to the story. Billy Bray lived the life of a wretched sinner before 1832 was converted and became an evangelist in Cornwall, England. 
He went door to door sharing the gospel, and soon every inhabitant in that area was converted. Eventually, the new converts realized they needed a church, and they pooled their resources together and built a church. The Church of England sent Reverend W. Haslam to preach and shepherd those Bray led to the Lord. But Bray was disturbed because it was obvious to him that Reverend Haslam didn't know the gospel. So Bray talked to him and expressed his opinion that he thought that the right reverend wasn't a Christian. Haslam was shaken and upset. The next Sunday, however, he stood to preach and announced his text, Matthew twenty-two forty-two. What think ye of Christ? As he started to deliver his message, he felt his heart breaking, was brought to repentance, and was saved while preaching his own sermon. And all God's people said, wow, wow, amazing. Some people have quite a bit of knowledge. Some people have gone to private Christian schools. Some people have gone on to uh, Christian universities. Some people have even gone to seminary. Be warned. Bible knowledge and training is no assurance of salvation. It merely makes you more accountable to God. Judas was trained by Christ himself for three years, yet now he resides in hell. Principle number three. You can be involved in ministry but not be saved. Question for you. Were the Jewish religious leaders of Jesus' day, were the, 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 the leaders of Israel, were they religious? Were they? Yes. Very much so. But Jesus called them the sons of the devil. And he said that even their children were ten times, ten times the sons of Uh, 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 more the children of hell than themselves. They profess to worship the true God. They profess to believe in the Bible. They had the right heritage. They had the right religion. But they were not saved. And Jesus speaking to the multitude on the Sermon on the Mount Mount in Matthew uh, chapter 7 and verses 21 through 23 had some very sobering words for them. His words apply to the last days, which includes people in the church. They were people who acknowledged the Lord, even cried out, Lord, Lord. They even preached and taught in his name. They performed miracles and they cast out demons, yet were never saved. For three years, Judas was actively involved in ministry, yet he now resides in hell. Principle number four, you can profess to be a follower of Christ but not be saved. Did Judas profess to be a follower? Did he let other people know that he was a follower? He did. Just like those mentioned in Matthew chapter 7. There are people in every church who profess to follow Christ who are not saved. Religious pretenders who are going through religious following motions. Isaiah in Isaiah 29, 13 explains why God is going to judge his people when he said, this people, these people draw near with their words and honor me with their lip service, but they remove their hearts far from me. And their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote, end quote. 
In other words, their following consisted of showing up, doing religious activities that were required, pretending to be worshipers of God, but they weren't saved. They follow God with their profession, but their heart doesn't follow him in practice. This was Judas Iscariot. There are many who say they know Christ and are followers of Christ, but who are liars, who are still in the darkness, who do not have the truth in them, and at this very moment, they are on their way to hell. They are. Is that you? Is that you? Are you pretending to be a lover of God? Are you going through the motions? Have you been spiritually conditioned to come to church on Sundays because it's a box you get to check off your your list? Never giving, never serving, never loving God from a pure heart. Sobering. So very sobering. For three years, Judas professed to be a follower of Christ, yet he now resides in hell. Principle number five, you can associate with believers and not be saved. Judas, if you think about this, he traveled for three years with Christ and the apostles. And they would bunk up together. They stayed together. There was an ongoing fellowship that was taking place when they traveled. But he wasn't saved. Do you remember the parable of the wheat and the tares which Jesus shared in Matthew 13, verses 24 through 30? The man sowed seed in his field, but at night his enemy would come and sowed seeds that produced weeds in his field. And the weeds were tares, which looked like grain, but they're not. You can't tell the difference until right before the harvest. And what happened? The workers, they wanted to go out and, and they said, you know what? We're going to go ahead and we're going to pull, pull those weeds out. And they were cautioned not to do that. And they said, no, we'll wait till the end. We'll wait till the end and because it would cause too much damage to, to the wheat, to, to the good fruit. But there would be a separation at the end during the harvest and then they would be burned up. And Jesus explained the meaning of the parable to them in Matthew 13, 37 through 43, which reads, the one who sows the good seed is the, son of, uh, is the son of man, and the field is the world. And is for the good seed, those who are the sons of the kingdom, and the tares, they are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil, and the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. So just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness, practice committing lawlessness, and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. 
We can't let this simple fact escape our attention. There are tares amongst the wheat in every church. Every church. And Paul, when he was writing the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, 30, saying, from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. Do not trust in your church attendance or association to save you. It won't save you any more than if you're drowning out at sea and somebody casted a heavy iron anchor out to you. It ensures your destruction. For three years, Judas associated with believers, yet he now resides in hell. Principle number six, you may be called, trained, devoted to ministry, profess to be a follower, associate with believers, and then go apostate. Some people go to church all their lives. They have worn a hole and they sit in the same seat. They've worn a hole in a pew. Their Bible covers look well-worn. They've taught in Sunday school. They've been, uh, they've memorized verses in Awana. They have an incredible amount of Bible knowledge. And then they go apostate. You know what an apostate is? It is the absolute worst thing that can ever happen to anyone on this earth. An apostate is someone after receiving the full knowledge of the truth and experiencing the fellowship of believers, after professing to be a true and authentic believer of the Lord Jesus Christ, turns their back on Christ and Christianity and goes their own way. And that's what, that's what Judas did. Peter in Acts one twenty five described Judas as rejecting the office of an apostle and turning aside to go to his own place. The author of Hebrews speaks of apostates. In Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 6, they tasted the good word of God, the powers of the age to come. They, they received the full revelation before they, they fell away. They, they hung around believers. They professed to be part of the church. But then, like Judas... They fell away. It's not that these people were saved and then they became unsaved. It's that they professed to be saved. They showed an outward repentance, but not a true repentance before falling away. For those who have fallen away, it is over. They have crossed the line. There is no hope of them being saved because they have fully embraced their heart of unbelief and rejection of Christ. Apostates hear the truth. They make a false profession of faith. They hang around believers. They go to church. They get trained. They get informed. They leave their sins for a time. Maybe experience Christian fellowship. They come. They sing the same songs that we know. They, they know creeds. They know professions of faith. And then they walk away from the church. They walk away from Christ and Christianity. Judas was called, he was trained, he was gifted, he had full revelation, he fellowshiped with believers, served in ministry, but his heart grew harder under the light of revelation. And at last, he turned his back on Christ and is now in hell. It's 
sobering. The seventh and final principle we can learn from Judas Iscariot is this. You may show signs of repentance and feel sorry for your sin, but not be saved. Did Judas feel sorry for his sin? He did. You know what? He even The money that he received for betraying Christ, 30 shekels of silver, whatever it was, he came back and he gave it back. He was grieved deeply over his sin. But he wasn't saved. And Paul helps us very clearly in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, a, a, a passage that we should know. Actually, verse 10 reads, For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. Judas's repentance was filled with regret. And it ultimately led to his death. And you want to know what? You can't find his name in this book. Because he didn't die for Christ in the church. Judas was sorry unto suicide. He killed himself because he lived for himself. That was the full wage of a life spent on himself. There are those who are sorry for their sins because they have to suffer the consequences of them. Because they, in the end, they pre- prevent them from ultimately getting what they want. But that isn't the kind of repentance that saves. Sorrow over sin is no guarantee of salvation. And Judas's life serves as a warning to us all this morning not to trust in false assurances of salvation. That we have to calculate the cost that we have to turn and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, acknowledging our sinfulness, renouncing any aspect of self-righteousness, any aspect of desires and wants and things of this world, that we turn from those things and that we are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ completely for our salvation. And when we ask God for forgiveness... And I don't want to take away the good news of the gospel because it is good news. And 1 John reminds us in 1 John 5, 13 that these things have been written so that you may know that you have eternal life, right? Does God want us to know? He he does. And true assurance of salvation comes from the result of a, a, comes and is revealed through a transformed life which lives for the glory of God and it flows out of a love of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the great difference between those who profess to know Christ and those who progress to know Christ. There's profession and then there's progression. And God is going to be at work in your life. And that's one of the ways that we can know, that we can be assured. When you walked in this morning, along with the bulletin or the ushers may have passed them out, did everyone get this sheet? I wanted, uh, because I wasn't going to have time in the sermon to talk about uh, assurance, 
I wanted to give you this tool. And it, those who have MacArthur Study Bibles in the back, there's actually a template of the same thing. I've added a couple of things uh, to it, just uh, some additional scriptures, a, a couple points. But what this does is it provides evidence that neither prove nor disprove one's faith. And then it provides proofs of authentic or true Christian faith. And I, I want you to have it. I want, I, I, we, we all need to take this test. We all need to use this tool. And this, if you know somebody who's struggling with assurance of salvation, this is a great discipleship resource to put before them. And just to, to, to use these scriptures, to hold them up as a mirror, to look in, to, 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 to look at your life. finishes with the question, how does one conduct their life in relationship to the gospel? It's so encouraging. You may find this one final fact interesting. <clears throat> who was the man who replaced Judas Iscariot as the 12th apostle in Acts chapter 1? What was his name? Matthias. That's right. Do we know how Matthias died? He's in this book. He was strapped to a cross. That nailed, strapped to a cross. He was stoned while he was on that cross. And finally, they beheaded him. And his blood was spilled all over that cross. So despite Judas's unfaithfulness, God replaced him. And the man who was faithful was Matthias. And he also spilt his blood to help lay the foundation for the church. And this concludes our series on the 12 hand-picked men. And I hope that the principles of application as we have surveyed these men's lives, the principles of application that we can apply to our lives continues to resonate in our heart. Again, if you weren't here for the entire series, would encourage you to go back and listen. And may we continue to be blessed by their blood that was spilt on our behalf as they followed the footsteps of the Lord Jesus Christ. Please pray with me. <clears throat> Father in heaven, your love, your faithfulness, and your truth has been sustained forever. Oh, Lord, your word is settled in heaven. And the truth is for the ages. And, Father, it is a truth that has been written in so much blood. And I say that not being insensitive or for a graphic effect. It's just the reality. It's just the reality. And Father, that we might know how much blood was spilt on our behalf. 
that we might know. That we might see it. That it would help us to see and to calculate the cost. Though many lives were given, though many animals slaughtered, it all fails in comparison to the one whom you would send, the one who would come and pay the ultimate price, the one who would spill his very own blood, his perfect blood, for my forgiveness for everyone's forgiveness who will truly believe. So Father, we just pray that and I confess my heart is so filled with indifference at times and I pray, Father, that you would help and break me. Help me to major on the majors and to minor on the minors as it relates to honoring you with my life and spiritual growth, I pray that for our church family. I thank you, Father, for those who are faithfully following the footsteps of the apostles who traveled so far. I think of Marcus and Amy. Think of Gina and Julia. I'm just so thankful for all the missionaries that are continuing to be sent out and some who are even having their own blood spilt for the sake of the church. And our blood is our life, Father. Our blood is our life and we want to give it to the church. Help us to do that very thing. Help us to give our life blood to the church. Not that it'll necessarily mean that we end up dying physically, but it will involve us dying spiritually, dying to our own desires. It will, as your spirit works within us, will help us to continue to abound spiritually as we die to these other things. We wouldn't die spiritually. Father, we thank you for helping us to persevere. I pray for the heart of the person that you brought here today that might be in doubt. And doubt is a good thing because it it forces us to, to look at our heart and to examine it before you. And it helps us to persevere. Perhaps there's someone here today who knows they they don't know you. They haven't been reconciled to you, Father, through the redemptive work of your Son. Would today be the day of their salvation? Would they cry out to you in forgiveness? And would they pray to you that you would grant them a heart of true repentance and that they could live the remainder of all their days and persevere to the very end, serving you with joy, serving you with peace, and serving you with gladness. We thank you again for this time. We ask that you'll bless and hear the prayers that we offer to you second hour and that you'll encourage the fellowship that we have as a church family. We commit it all to you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.